Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Whenever I record an FRDH, I try to think of what you might be doing when you listen. It helps me shape these podcasts. Anyway, it's the end of summer, and I'm going away for a bit, and I thought I would put up something much longer than usual, but it has a great deal of music, a lot of good stuff, so hopefully you won't mind. I imagine people listening to this on a drive to or from someplace relaxing or detoxing from the news, something we all have to do these days, and sitting outside with a cool drink or preparing dinner as the brightness of the now noticeably shorter days gives way to the diffuse glow of magic hour, or maybe just at night, before sleep. Jews and Blues is from my archive, made in the year 2000. The brilliant sound mix was by my studio producer then, George Hicks. He also put me in touch with Hank Isnetsky of the New England Conservatory of Music, who provided a wonderful interview and some great music from his personal collection. If you like it, please share it, and let me know. You can contact me at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and you can make a donation while you're there to keep these podcasts coming. Anyway, here we go. On the ruins of an Auschwitz crematorium, a Jewish cantor sings out for the millions murdered there. On a chain gang in Mississippi, a man sings a sound shaped by all the troubles God can send the son of slaves living in the Jim Crow South. She don't live yet no more. Listen closely. These two sounds form the roots of American popular music. And if you're inclined to the view that jazz is America's classical music, well then, you have the roots of America's classical music as well. Good morning, children, how you feeling, shine? I don't want no trouble, I want my whole back time. The story of how Jewish and African-American music came to be mingled is the story of how the soundtrack of the American century came to be written. Beyond the music, the tale is social history, a chronicle of migration and immigration, defining, culturally at least, how newcomers become American. It is also a tale of race and progressive politics. But before talking about the social history created when the Jews met the blues, it's necessary to understand what made Jewish and African-American music distinct. When Jews began arriving in America in large numbers at the end of the 19th century, they brought with them many different kinds of music, secular and religious, with one unifying characteristic, according to Hankus Netsky, professor at the New England Conservatory of Music. One thing that a lot of this music had in common was a feeling 
of transcendence, of a kind of crying that was in the background. It didn't matter whether we were talking about a fervent prayer or a klezmer version of a gypsy-style Romanian wedding piece, for example. They all had what the Jews called a krechts. A krechts means uh, literally a groan. It had a kind of sighing, kind of sobbing to it. The krechst, the sob, is the essential sound of Jewish music. For African-American music, it's something different. You need to be able to growl. Clarinetist Don Byron, one of the most highly regarded instrumentalists and composers of his generation. It's impossible to play any kind of blues stuff with one tone. So you need a fuzz tone, what you'd call on the guitar distortion. You need a, uh, you need a, ooh. You know, you need most of the sounds you need to get through a night of intercourse. So the essential sounds that define the two groups' musics are very distinct. The sob, the growl, and so were the experiences that led to their creation. The Jewish sound developed in south-central Europe, according to Hankus Netsky. In the southern part of what we call the Pale of Settlement, the places where the Jews settled in Europe. There were Turks, there were Romanians, there were Greeks, there were Jews, there were Armenians. Who knows? In that area, it was very, very mixed. And the Jews were just as likely to pick up a new sailor's dance, for example, that would come to Odessa, or a Greek melody or folk song, as the Greeks were to pick up on the Jewish folk song, so that we can't even tell who invented what. Out of this mixture came dance music. It was the Motown of the Pale of Settlement. Music played all over that vast area from the Mediterranean to the Baltic, where once there was a huge Jewish population. And what the Jews would do is appropriate, for example, the Romanian shepherd song and use it at the Jewish wedding. The tears of the bride or the mother of the bride would infuse this Romanian shepherd song. This is how people borrowed each other's material. If you think about it, it makes sense. The Jews lived in a cosmopolitan hodgepodge of people where three dying empires, the Austro-Hungarian, Ottoman, and Russian, intersected. And interestingly, according to Netsky, the music being reworked in the Pale of Settlement was not without its African influences. We find a lot in common between Moroccan music, for example, and Greek music, and Turkish music, and Arabic music, if you go even to Syria or Egypt, you'll find a lot of the same kinds of feelings in the music. So borrowing, synthesizing, transmuting music with similar feelings from many different cultures, including music with roots in North Africa, was the basic process by which Jewish musicians invented new tunes. You'll also find similar kinds of feelings in African-American music, Many people feel that the modality that we think of as a blues has a lot in common with Arabic maqam. Do you think that? It sounds like it to me. I don't, I, the, here's, here's an example. Some of the modalities of the Eastern European Jewish music are in fact similar, especially to minor blues. You'll hear a sound that goes and then, all you'd have to do is, if you put the fourth in there, it would be like this. <laughs> you can switch from one to the other very quickly. <laughs>
But rather than being synthesized from many different cultures, the blues evolved in the U.S. out of a unique set of circumstances, the lives of African Americans in the years after emancipation, according to Amiri Baraka, author of Blues People. The blues, just like the forms that preceded it, they're all basis of Afro-Americans creating an art form that expresses their feelings about being here in America, but not part of it. For Baraka, the blues is the indivisible core of all African-American musical expression. Musician Don Byron agrees. The blues, it's someone stating the basic complaint of their condition on an existential level, and then somehow, as the thing rises, as it gains its own steam as a piece of art, it kind of even transcends the misery. It creates its own immortality. Distilled to its essence, the blues reflects the condition of the people who created it. Deeply impoverished, newly emancipated slaves had virtually no instruments on which to create this music. Brooms to sweep on the floor for rhythm, and a bit of animal gut stretched out along a piece of wood to create a banjo an African word for a plucking, plaintive accompaniment. But Don Byron says the blues sound was formed in the mouths of its inventors. The blues as a music is entirely a vocal experience, entirely. and work songs, casting chain gangs and prisons. That's where the vocal style evolved from. Singers led the way to the creation of the music. The human voice could pour itself over notes, do things to them that ordinary musical instruments could not. And instrumentalists studied the blues singers to learn more. People were listening to Bessie Smith. People that played instruments were applying that kind of feeling, how the notes were treated, where you went from one note to another note, where you bend a note, all of the ornaments were listened to by instrumentalists and put on an instrument. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, both blacks and Jews were on the move in their millions, heading away from poverty and oppression in the rural American South and Europe, heading towards a new beginning in the great cities of America's industrial North. From Europe, Jews brought a synthesizing musical sensibility. From the South, blacks brought a unique sound that was expanding the sensual possibilities of instrumental music, for example, on the piano. Ragtime. Mm -hmm. 
Tracing the African-American and Jewish musical roots of American pop music is fairly simple. Tracing the dynamic by which black and Jewish musicians invented that music is more complex. This is a very selective story about how African-Americans and Jews lived near each other and did exchange cultural materials every day. Jeffrey Melnick, assistant professor at Babson College and author of A Right to Sing the Blues. So the question is, how did African-Americans and Jews meet? There's all these great stories about how blacks and Jews understood each other, but those stories often get abstracted as being somehow about a mystical connection. And what I like to do is bring it back to the city, northeast cities in particular. We should be specific here. We're talking about New York. We're talking about Boston. We're also talking about Chicago. Say, what streets were, were blacks and Jews living next door to each other on? Where was George Gershwin roller skating when he was a 12-year-old boy that he heard ragtime? In George Gershwin's case, there were many, many New York streets where he roller skated, from Coney Island to Harlem, as his father kept moving the family, trying to get an economic foothold in the new world. And these were streets where Gershwin would certainly have heard black music. In a socially segregated society, the one place where whites and blacks lived together were the impoverished neighborhoods of the big cities. And the sound in that first decade of the 20th century was a form of African-American music that had taken the country by storm after the 1904 St. Louis World's Fair. Ragtime. That was the first media description of the music that these black pianists made. Blues people author Amiri Baraka. They said that the time was raggedy because it was using beats and emphasis that weren't necessarily used in uh, European concert music or even American pop or near Broadway music. Ragtime, despite the critics' reservations about its syncopated rhythms, swept the country. When America in general heard this use of syncopation in highly pianistic music, it had influence on them that say, a uh, banjo or the, or the washboard wouldn't necessarily have. Ragtime filled the air of New York, pouring out of music halls and rolling out the windows of apartment buildings from player pianos. To the young Jewish immigrants just off the boat, barely knowing English, much less the tortured racial history of America, ragtime, toe-tappingly fresh and alive, symbolized their new country. Now, imagine a young Russian-Jewish newcomer named Izzy Balin looking for work on New York's Lower East Side, learning English from the lyrics of popular songs. Izzy Balin, of course, is Irving Berlin. When he's a singing waiter at a sort of bar and nightclub on the Bowery run by a guy named Mike Salter, who was known in the vernacular of the time as Nigger Mike, um, what he would hear is black music, and that would be what he would want to reproduce in his own music. At one level, this immersion into African-American music was simply the time-honored process by which young immigrants differentiate themselves from the old world, according to musician Don Byron. You know, what your parents were into, where they came from, that was the anti-hipness. And then jazz was the hipness. In the beginning of the century, and pretty much up until now, these black-derived musics like jazz, bebop, hip-hop, They've all served as a way of Americanizing a person, separating from a kind of long-lost European old country identity. 
It's a way of separating yourself from your parents, from your grandparents, and it made you more American, even though the people that actually created the thing were much less than full Americans. In a way, blacks were the cultural martyrs for the country. The turn of the century marked an era full of promise for black musicians. Ragtime pianist and composer Scott Joplin became so well-known, he could even dream the crossover dream, says Babson College's Jeffrey Melnick. Scott Joplin comes to New York around the turn of the last century with the idea that he's going to move from being a kind of barroom brothel-associated ragtime pianist to become a composer. The composing action at the time was New York and Boston. Um, so he came to New York and worked for years and years on this ill-fated folk opera called Tremonitia. shops it around all over, including the same music publishing company that Irving Berlin first published with and later became a partner in. So Joplin's theory was that Irving Berlin got his hands on Tremonitia, or some of the early works that became Tremonitia, and used one of the musical themes for his own Alexander's Ragtime Band. Joplin constantly made alterations to the score, but scholars think this section from the finale of Tremonitia could be the music Joplin thought Berlin used in Alexander's Ragtime Band. Alexander's Ragtime Band puts Berlin on the map uh, in 1911-1912. So by the time he hits England a couple years later, it's Irving Berlin who's called the King of Ragtime, not Scott Joplin. There were gossip uh, items in the newspapers of the time saying things like, Scott Joplin is hot for Irving Berlin. He wants to meet him to have a discussion about Alexander's Ragtime Band. Come on along, come on along, let me take you by the hand. Up to the man, up to the man, who's the leader of the band. And if you care to hear the Swanee River play, in ragtime, come on and heal, come on and heal, Alexander's ragtime band. Tremonitia became Joplin's obsession. It was performed just once in his lifetime. Joplin suffered a nervous collapse that led to his institutionalization. He died in 1917. Berlin became the owner of his own music publishing company and the unofficial court composer for the America of Immigrant Dreams and died at the age of 101. The amazing thing that Berlin did is that he was able to take the musical vocabulary of ragtime and convert it into something less strictly black sounding. He was able to take the general idea of syncopation, and music critics are always quick to point out that Alexander's Ragtime Band is not literally in ragtime, that it's a, a kind of approximation of what people at the time would have called the raciness 
or the pep of ragtime, um, took that and turned it into something broader, easier to take, what today we call mainstream. So he talks about ragtime in the song without speaking in ragtime. The line that always grabs my ear in Alexander's ragtime band is when the singer sings, so natural that you want to go to war, because there's a way there that it makes it sound like playing ragtime is a patriotic thing to do. I think that's Berlin's genius. While Irving Berlin, George Gershwin, and other Tin Pan Alley composers consciously imitated blues-derived music because it seemed so American, other Jewish musicians tried to keep an element of their own Eastern European music in what they played, according to the New England Conservatory's Hankus Netsky. For example, J. Russell Robinson of the uh, original Dixieland Jazz Band, who had one Jewish grandparent tried to find a way to bring some of that Jewish immigrant music into the jazz that he did. And he took an old Moldavian or maybe even Greek tune from Eastern Europe, played in a Jewish style, and then he blended it with the ragtime. And he came up with this American style tune, and he uh, called this Lena from Palestina. treat for all you Artie Shaw fans. During the past few months, requests have been piling up for Artie to play one of his most famous arrangements. Well, it's on tap for right now. Here's Artie, his clarinet, and the orchestra in a number that's guaranteed not only to send you, but to bring you back. It's the chant. In this tune, Artie Shaw is showing the association that he had between two tunes from two different cultures. The popular wedding recessional called Chusen Kala Mazel Tov. Which everybody knew in the Jewish community. And St. James Infirmary Blues. I went down to the St. James Infirmary. And he was taking those two things and putting them together in this piece. Although overtly it sounds like a version of St. James Infirmary Blues, but there's an in-joke there that's supposed to resonate in the Jewish community.
the other end of the scale, African-American musicians used Yiddish tunes and expressions to make music to appeal to a broader audience. Cab Calloway took a Yiddish folk song, and he turned this into an African-American novelty song, and you kind of hear the layers of irony kind of peel themselves away as Cab Calloway does this parody on a Jew, Al Jolson, imitating a black singer. And then, as if his own background is cantorial, he gives you all kinds of wild, hybrid cantorial riffs. My mother used to sing to me a haunting little melody. Nobody knows where it came from or where it was composed. A design sings a tailor as he fashions pretty clothes. A design sings a tailor as he sews and sews and sews. The whole process of cultural exchange culminated in the biggest selling song of the middle third of the American century. In 1932, a Yiddish musical called Michain Leben Normilostnit. I would if I could, opened in New York, featuring a little tune called By Mir Mr. Shane. Five years later, in 1937, songwriter Sammy Kahn was up at the Apollo Theater in Harlem and heard a black duo, Johnny and George, bringing down the house with their rendition of the song, sung in Yiddish. Kahn figured if people actually understood what the guys were singing, they'd dig the song even more. So he did an English version for the Andrews sisters. sisters to Ella Fitzgerald to sales of well over 14 million records Sobbing, growling, 
and a large dollop of wit became the essential ingredients of popular music, when pressure cooked by the desire to be accepted into the mainstream of American life by Jewish songwriters, the result was Tin Pan Alley, an almost exclusively Jewish brotherhood, a place where immigrant American optimism trumped even the darkest story, and the blues became something other than a people's plaint at their dangerous second-class status. Tin Pan Alley was the place where Jewish songwriters plighted their troth to the new world. In words and music, they declared their love and loyalty to America. Tin Pan Alley was also a real place. Initially located in an alley off 14th Street near the Lower East Side in New York, it was a place where the music publishers had their offices and tiny studios where songwriters banged out new tunes on metallic old upright pianos. Passers-by thought it sounded like tin pans being beaten hence the name. New songs were a big business, not for recording, but to be sold to sheet music and piano rolls to be played in the parlors of America. Alexander's Ragtime Band showed just how big the market for Berlin synthesis of blues and ragtime was. This kind of song, whether written by Eubie Blake and Noble Sissel or George and Ira Gershwin, quickly came to define for the rest of the world what American music sounded like. The cultural amalgamation of African-American and Jewish musical sensibilities took hold so quickly and so successfully that by 1924, songwriter George Gershwin was self-consciously synthesizing a distinctly American form of classical music. physically changed location, following New York's Pleasure Center up Broadway, eventually landing in the Brill Building, just north of Times Square. The alley's largely Jewish songwriters continued writing the tunes, which became standards of the repertoire, and would provide the melodic and harmonic backbone of jazz as that improvisatory music evolved into bebop. The Brill Building, where many Tin Pan Alley songwriters worked, would eventually become the home of rock and roll songwriters. The musical styles might change, but the social dynamic remained the same as it was when Irving Berlin discovered ragtime. And African-American music, say rhythm and blues, would be reinterpreted, reinvented for white America by Jewish songwriters and turned into rock and roll. And now, our story enters the painful world of race relations. We don't really have a vernacular for, for discussing the social order the way that it's actually shaken out. Clarinetist Don Byron. That's why these discussions are awkward. The chief question in this story is, was this creative process simply exploitative of black musicians, or was it as fair an exchange as possible of musical ideas in a world that was segregated legally and by social custom? The truth of the situation is, there's not one truth. If you grew up after the great civil rights era, the odds are you see it as a story of exploitation. You wonder why Gershwin's concert at the Aeolian Hall is common knowledge, while African-American conductor James Reese Europe's 1912 ragtime concert at Carnegie Hall, the first time black music was played there, isn't. 
You retell the tale of white band leader Paul Whiteman sending musical copyists to the Cotton Club to take down, note by note, Duke Ellington's arrangements when the Duke refused to sell them to Whiteman. But if you grew up in the days when black musicians weren't allowed to play with white musicians, you might see things differently. Listen to bassist Milt Hinton and pianist Billy Taylor reminiscing on a Library of Congress recording about the counter's son, Harold Arlen, and his work at the Cotton Club. Harold Arlen and yeah. many of those people that wrote for the Cotton Club, yeah. they really assimilated the jazz spirit. I mean, they knew the kind of voices they were writing for, the kind of the dances they were uh, scoring for. Well, they uh, had a race relationship there. Right. And we, we don't give credence to it now. But I, I knew Harold Arlen. I knew him very well. In fact, I made a record with him singing. He was a marvelous singer. Mm -hmm. And pianist. Yeah, pianist. Yeah. And man, if you want to hear Stormy Weather, you should hear him sing Stormy really? Weather. Really? That's right. He really sang. Arlen, is, he lived through so much of that history. And, Absolutely. You know, he was off the top of the head, say, oh, yeah, when I was at the Cotton Club, I was so and so was happening, That's and so and so right. was there, and all that. And I mean, it's just, just history, you know. That's right. That's, it's, it's, that's the reason I happen to know about him being with, with Fletcher Henderson. He was Fletcher Henderson's rehearsal pianist. So he was in Harlem and involved in it. And harmonically, he's, he was so sophisticated. He incorporated all of that kind of thing that came out of the black vocal, yeah. the way people talked and the way, way, yeah. way they sang. And you could hear that in his melodies. That's know? right. The same thing with Gershwin. Mm -hmm. What is true is that throughout the period where the basics of American song were being created, the main social interface between African Americans and white Americans was the interaction between blacks and Jews. The only place where blacks and whites could work together was in the worlds of music and the world of left-wing politics. In both, most of the whites were Jews. Mark Nason, professor of African American studies at Fordham University, points to two reasons for this. First of all, it wasn't clear they were white. Their status was somewhere in between African-Americans and the, the sort of Anglo-Saxon majority. Jews came to the United States with these radical and socialist traditions that were universalistic. And in some instances, they found themselves immersing themselves in African-American cultural forms and also beginning to feel that this issue of race in America had a powerful connection to them. Of course, not all Jews were involved in progressive politics, but the majority of whites in cities attracted to progressive politics were Jews, and racial justice was a core issue of the left. According to historian Nason, author of Communists in Harlem During the Depression, the far left worked hard to break down the social taboos about racial mixing. The Communist Party organized interracial dances because they wanted to directly take on the taboo against social equality. So you'd have an interracial dance in Harlem and whites in the movement would dance with African Americans and sometimes out of that friendships and intimate relationships would occur and those were encouraged by the Communist Party. Interracial intimacy was seen as a direct challenge to the racial prejudices and the divisions in the working class. So you began to have a certain amount of not 
under the cover of night, interracial sexuality, which has always existed in America, but open interracial dating and interracial marriage. We're not talking about tens of thousands of people, but we are talking about hundreds and possibly thousands of people breaking these taboos in a supportive culture. These interracial dances brought together the top musical talent of the era. You have an interracial dance, Duke Ellington is going to be invited to play there, or Teddy Wilson. I mean, the top African-American musicians of Harlem were drawn into this, and they were also drawn into benefits for the Scottsboro Boys, where you might also have the Marx Brothers come in. Pressure to integrate the music business came from the left as well. Until well into the 1930s, bands, on stage at least, were segregated. Then Benny Goodman, at the suggestion of his producer John Hammond, decided to change things, playing with pianist Teddy Wilson, heard here reminiscing with Milt Hinton in a Library of Congress recording. We had a tremendous big audience watching this, uh, this new thing of, of racial mixing on an equal basis. Because before that, the racial mixing would be like Ted Lewis doing Me and My Shadow. Right. He'd prance around the stage singing Me and My Shadow, and the little Negro boy would be following him and imitating every motion and be the shadow. Right. Uh, that, that category of, of appearing. But a lot of uh, uh, cities and states, it was illegal for the two races to be on the stage at the same time. So no matter how popular the sounds being created in this black-Jewish fusion of music and politics were, they weren't powerful enough to overcome the prejudices in much of the country. When Artie Shaw took Billie Holiday on a tour of the South, the band leader recalled in a Library of Congress interview, it was a very quick trip. We finished the tune, and I think it was traveling. She finished it, a lot of applause, and she went back to sit down in her chair. You know, those days the girl singer sat in the crook of the piano. And some redneck standing in front of the band hollered, how'd the nigger went sing another song? So I thought, oh, Jesus Christ, I gave a downbeat or two beats. We went into back bay shuffle or something immediately. He kept yelling, Billy sitting there, and I could see something's out. All of a sudden, she leans forward, and I could see these words, motherfucker, son of a bitch, bastard, coming out of her. And the guy saw what she was doing. She was really hissing at him. Well, all of a sudden, little knots forming. I mean, you can see groups of people. Yeah. I got nervous. I thought, you know, this has got the makings of a riot, yeah. a lynch. So I went, and my bus driver and my truck driver and a couple of cops that I had posted came in, closed in on her, took her out, put her in the bus and drove away. That was the end of Billy's Southern tour. Despite incidents like that, the movement towards integration under the cover of music continued reaching its apex in 1938, when Barney Josephson opened Cafe Society in New York. It was the only nightclub outside of Harlem where blacks and whites could mix. There, Billie Holiday, night after night, sang the signature song of the era. And now I'd like to sing a tune. It was written especially for me. It's titled Strange Fruit. I do hope you like it. <laughs> Strange Fruit was written by Abel Mirapol a Jewish high school teacher from the Bronx. Southern trees. 
bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves, and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Twisted mouth, scent of magnolia, sweet and fresh. Then the sudden smell of burning flesh. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck for the rain together for the wind to suck for the sun to rot for the tree to After the Second World War, the musical interchange between blacks and Jews continued to redefine American popular music. There was music for pleasure, rock and roll. There was music for politics, the apotheosis being Bob Dylan and his blues-tinged songs, and a vocal style that was a perfect tenor balance of the krext and the growl. But since the mid-60s, the music world, as well as the world of progressive politics, has fragmented. A reassessment of race relations in the music business between blacks and Jews is constant, and some of the discourse has been painful. The hurt on both sides is profound, and many of the people still alive who made this history simply won't discuss it. It's down to younger musicians like Hankus Netsky and Don Byron, who used to play together in a klezmer band, to offer a comment on the meaning of race in the creation of our nation's popular music. Byron says that racial attitudes still limit the majority population's ability to accept blues-derived music from the people who are its source. People kind of monitor how much color they have in their life. Essentially, people want the product of black musicians, but they don't want it in a real concentrated way. Sometimes they don't even want it from the black musician themselves. 
The New England Conservatory's Hankus Netsky stops short of a ground theory about why, out of all the immigrant groups that came to America, it was Jewish immigrant musicians that became the main synthesizers of black music. Jewish immigrants were, in fact, trying as hard as they possibly could to become American. Occasionally, they wrote things that reflected their Jewish roots, and they were fairly self-conscious about that. But in fact, when they were trying to sound African-American, I think they made no bones about the fact that they really were going for that culture and trying to operate within that culture as best they could as American songwriters, and that the process is really an American process there. But, Netsky adds... I would say that they're both deeply emotional musics, that they both are musics that perhaps are about transcending an environment that might have been intolerable and transcending that through going to a higher place through musical expression. And yet, there seems to be more to it. When you look back on a century of American popular music, there is something quite profound going on that simply listened to, without being refracted through the prism of post-civil rights consciousness, reveals a unique exchange of sensibility. Perhaps the only way to know the truth of what happened is to time travel to a tenement block somewhere in Harlem on a warm day in 1910. Sit on the stoop surrounded by the sounds of the street, not just the sound of a piano or a horn coming out of an apartment played by someone aspiring to be middle class, but the different rhythms and cadences of the language in the street, the questioning chrext of Yiddish, drawling grammatically colorful southern inflected English. Watch how blacks and Jews talk to each other, how their kids play, how they fight eavesdrop on the word games played by kids reinventing our most flexible of languages. Listen. That's all for this FRDH podcast. You can listen to more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and you can make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Thanks for listening.